So welcome to Theological Equipping. If this is what you're looking for, you're in the right place. We've been talking about uh, systematic theology over the past few months uh, and over really the, the past couple of years. And so we have covered everything from theology proper into, so that's just the doctrine of God, into bibliology, the nature of Scripture, how do we interpret it, those sorts of things. This semester, we began by talking about anthropology. What's anthropology? Study of man. Then we went from anthropology, in order to understand who man is, you need to understand something of hamartiology, which is the study of sin. And then we're moving from uh, hamartiology into soteriology, which is? the study of salvation. And so we began by talking about kind of the big picture story of salvation rather than just starting in the very middle of the story with the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We wanted to give kind of a a more macro kind of overarching picture of God's plan of redemption. So we talked about the kingdom, and then we've been talking about these things called covenants. Someone tell me what a covenant is. You don't have to give me the actual definition, but in general, what is a covenant? Covenant. It's a, yeah, it's a, some sort of a contract or an agreement or an oath between two parties. Typically, there is a sovereign and then there is a vassal. There is a higher and then there is a lower. And there is this sort of contract, but it's a little bit stronger than a contract because it involves some sort of a personal relationship. There is this contract between them that kind of stipulates the various responsibilities that each party has. And so uh, we began by talking about covenants in general and kind of just laid a foundation for what those are. Then we talked about the covenant that God makes with mankind in the garden. That we call that the Adamic covenant. Then the covenant that God makes with, uh, with mankind through Noah, the Noahic. And then last week we covered the Abrahamic. And then this week we're going to talk about the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel in the wilderness at, uh, at Sinai. And so there are a number of different things that the Bible will call this particular covenant. And, uh, and so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14, they just call this the Old Covenant which, uh, so Paul is using this language here of old covenant, but as you can see, there's not just one old covenant. There are multiple covenants that are, that precede what is called the new covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, but he uses the word, the phrase old covenant in particular to refer to the Mosaic covenant. It's also sometimes called the first covenant, uh, in the book of uh, Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 7, the author calls it the first covenant. Again, it's not technically the first covenant. It's the first covenant uh, in light of the new covenant being the second covenant. So there's a contrast that's presented there, sometimes called the Torah or the Torah, uh, the law or instruction. Uh, but we're going to call it the Mosaic covenant. That is most often what it's called because it's the covenant that's made through Moses. Typically, there is a, a name, a human representative that, is, uh, th- that the covenants are named after. Although the, uh, the covenant that God makes with uh, mankind is with all of mankind, we call it the Adamic covenant because he's the human representative. And so we will call this the Mosaic covenant. But you'll also sometimes see it as like the Sinaitic Uh, covenant, uh, because it's the covenant that God makes at Mount Sinai. And uh, so those are various names for it. 
Previously, as we talked about these various covenants, uh, most of them tended to be pretty simple. They covered uh, a paragraph, a chapter, something like that in the text. But uh, whenever we get to the Mosaic Covenant today, this is going to be the most complex covenant that we're going to be covering. It really is going to cover narrative going all the way from the book of Exodus into uh, Deuteronomy. And uh, so we're going to try to really cover uh, broadly that, so it won't be a a comprehensive look at these covenants this morning, but this really is the most most complex, the most complicated of all of the covenants. It it has things like laws and rituals and all of these sorts of things. It's kind of like the organic chemistry of covenants. It's so complex, it's so complicated, and so we'll try to give a little bit of a summary statement. And so in order to do that, I want to to kind of catch us up. So we've been in between these covenants. We've been kind of telling uh, the narrative flow that we see in Scripture. And so I want to kind of go from Abraham to the Mosaic covenant. What's happening in the Bible in that context? So as you know, Abraham had a number of sons. Uh, Now, if someone were to ask you, how many sons did Abraham say? You might say two. The answer is actually much more than that. He actually had six others after uh, Sarah died in Genesis 25. It talks about that. We never talk about that, Uh, but uh, that's what the Bible says. But there's one son of promise. That son of promise is Isaac. And, uh, and so the narrative then follows uh, after that son in particular. Uh, Isaac is married, and he has uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And one of those sons is the son of promise. That is Jacob. Jacob's name later becomes Israel. So the, the, the name Israel is, uh, is actually Jacob's personal name. It's a name that he has given after he wrestles with God. That's what uh, the, the word Israel means. And Jacob has 12 sons. And what's really interesting is that unlike with Abraham's son Isaac and unlike with uh, Isaac's son Jacob, the narrative doesn't progress by following the, uh, the chosen son. Uh, the narrative actually progresses by, uh, by following in the line of Joseph, who is not the, the line through whom Jesus is going to come. So that's kind of an interesting fact uh, about what goes on. But uh, Joseph, as most of you know, is sold into slavery. He ends up in, uh, imprisoned in Egypt. Uh, where he is lifted out of uh, prison and he eventually becomes like the prime minister or the vice president uh, of Egypt. He becomes the second in command to Pharaoh. And that is really where the book of Genesis ends, is he has brought his entire family, rescued them from famine, brought them into the land of Egypt. But hundreds of years later, uh, all of a sudden, Israel is no longer seen as a blessing to the Egyptian people. Uh, the Pharaoh who had, uh, had known of Joseph's faithfulness is no longer in power, obviously. And, uh, and so there is a new Pharaoh in town, and he is threatened by the Israelites, and so he enslaves them. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up, is with the uh, kind of the uh, enslavement of the uh, Israelites there. And, uh, and yet Moses is rescued out of this slavery and is kind of placed into Pharaoh's own house, We're kind of just broadly covering uh, the narrative until uh, he rescues a Hebrew slave from the hand of his uh, Egyptian master, and uh, and then uh, out of fear, Moses flees, and for 40 years, he kind of wanders in the wilderness of 
uh, of Midian. And, uh, and then after 40 years, God calls to him from the burning bush and sends him back to Egypt to rescue his people. We won't talk about all of those different events, but you need to understand this context to understand God brings his people out of, uh, out of Egypt that is an exodus. It's a way out. It's a deliverance. It's a journey out of the land uh, of Egypt. And he brings them there on the way to the promised land to Mount Sinai, which is where this covenant is going to be confirmed. So that kind of catches us up in the, uh, the narrative from Abraham to Moses. So Israel is there on, uh, not on the cusp of the promised land at this point. They're still in the wilderness. They're there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where we'll pick up the narrative in a moment with the, uh, uh, with the covenant. But before we get to that, we need to understand a relationship that exists here between the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about last week. So last week in the Abrahamic covenant, Zach talked about three blessings in particular that come through the Abrahamic covenant, three things that are promised there. And, uh, and so he talked about descendants. He talked about a number of descendants, that uh, Abraham's descendants would be as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the seashore or, or some of those sorts of things. Now imagine this, when the Mosaic Covenant happens, there are now hundreds of thousands of Israelites gathered there at Sinai. So you can see how God has been faithful to his promise to give Abraham descendants there. Uh, and so we see this fulfillment, in a sense, uh, uh, at least a partial fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant already there at uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. There is also a promise in the Abrahamic covenant of dynasty, uh, that there would be this uh, rulership. And so we see that in the Mosaic covenant. As we're going to read, one of the purposes at the very heart of the Mosaic covenant was this promise that God makes that Israel is going to be a nation of king, uh, of king priests, kingly priests, or priestly kings, or something like that. So you see, again, this partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that there is going to be this dynasty, and then there's also going to be an aspect of dominion. And part of this Mosaic covenant is the idea that Israel is going to give, be given a particular land over which they are to exercise uh, dominion. And so you see, again, this partial fulfillment of all of these promises, the Abrahamic covenant, all of them are somehow coming to fruition. Now, they're not going to fully come to fruition until uh, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but you see this partial fulfillment already in the Mosaic covenant. And so this builds upon and is, in a sense, a supplement to the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant fits within the stream. Uh, the Mosaic covenant fits within the stream of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's a covenant that's focusing on Israel in particular. So again, Abraham has multiple sons, and from those multiple sons, there are mul multiple nations that are descended, but this particular covenant is with a particular nation in a particular land, at a particular time. That's really important to recognize about the Mosaic Covenant. It's for a particular people, at a particular time, in a particular place. And if you miss that, then you're going to misunderstand and misapply uh, the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. One of the, the, the things that uh, we have seen as we've talked about these covenants is that there is this sense in which there is this narrowing of the covenants as we move along. And so the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, both of those are given uh, to the world. They are God's covenants, uh, in a sense, with the entire world. Like the Noahic covenant is not just a particular people, it's God's promise that he will never again uh, flood the earth and destroy the entire earth by means of a flood. That's not just a promise for us. 
That's a promise for the entire world. And so there is this universal scope to these, and then you see this progressive narrowing uh, of the covenants uh, throughout these next three. And, uh, and so you see it uh, kind of centered on the family of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And you see furthermore down not just to the Abrahamic line, but to the line of Isaac and then to the line of Jacob in the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that's made particularly with Israel. And then you'll see a further narrowing of that within all the tribes of Israel. You go to the one tribe of Judah. Within all the families in Judah, you go to the one line that, his, that has uh, David uh, as a descendant. And so again, this narrowing down. And then what's interesting about the new covenant is that in a sense, it's both the most narrow and then also the most expansive. It's the most narrow and the most expansive. What I mean by that is it is fulfilled by only one person. Unlike the Abrahamic covenant, unlike the Mosaic covenant, uh, unlike the Davidic covenant, which are with entire peoples, the new covenant is only fulfilled by one. There's only one person that fits within the promises that are made in the new covenant, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's how it's the most restrictive of all of the covenants, and yet it's also the most expansive because there's also this promise that in Christ, the entire world is going to be blessed. That by virtue of our union with him, by being in Christ through faith, that we receive all the promises, that we become co-heirs with him. He is the only heir of this promise. Again, there are entire nations that are heirs through this. He is the only heir, but then we become incorporated into him and we become co-heirs. So it's the most restrictive and also the most expansive. Does that make sense? And, uh, and so, we, again, we've seen this narrowing, 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 and then this explosion forth uh, of expansion. And the purpose, as we look at the Mosaic Covenant, the purpose, uh, I think I put this in your notes. Um, I found this to be a helpful kind of definition of the purpose, that Israel was already God's chosen or elect people because of the promises that God had made to Abraham. But the covenant with Moses established the nation as a holy kingdom of priests dedicated to serving God and teaching the other nations of the world about him. Israel was a theocracy, that is a nation that's ruled directly by God. And the Mosaic covenant established the political, social, and religious aspects of Israel's life. The uh, political, social, and religious aspects of Israel's life. You need to understand the Mosaic covenant uh, with the Mosaic law as being a fundamental part of that is this holistic view of how life in ancient Israel is to function. There is no separation of church and state or anything like that. This really is going to be the entire sort of rule book for uh, life as an early Israelite. In addition to this purpose, it's also going to function as a shadow. That's the language that the New Testament is going to pick up. It's a shadow with all of the festivals, with all the feasts, with all the sacrifices, with all of uh, these sorts of things. There are, these are all types. Uh, they're shadows that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the great antitype. He is the fulfillment of all of these sorts of, uh, sorts of things. And so that's a little bit of the, uh, the purpose. And as we're looking at the Mosaic Covenant in the context of the ancient Near East, uh, then you'll notice there are a number of similarities that exist between this Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God makes with his people there at Sinai. There are a number of different similarities between the Mosaic covenant and just general treaties that you would see in the ancient Near East. So we've talked about some of these things before. 
Uh, and so most covenants that you see, if you go back and you read, the only we have access to dozens upon dozens of other covenants in addition to the ones that we see in scriptures. There's covenants from Egypt, there's covenants from Babylon, from Assyria, from all throughout the, uh, the ancient Near East. And so we can read these and we can see there's actually a whole lot of similarity, that God is just simply using cultural customs. He's using language and concepts that people are already familiar with to express uh, his revelation to his people. And so similar to existing ancient Near Eastern covenants, uh, we see in the Mosaic Covenant this uh, language of kind of a preamble uh, or a prologue. Uh, you see that in Exodus 19.4. This is where the sovereign is going to kind of rehearse. He's going to remind the people of his sovereignty, and he's going to identify the dependence of the subordinate uh, vassal. He's going to remind them of how gracious he has been, how good he has been, how sovereign he is, and remind the, the vassal of how dependent and how desperate uh, they should be. Again, uh, covenants, uh, in particular God's covenants, are established on grace. They're God's gracious response to sin. He doesn't have to make a covenant with us. We sin, he could simply destroy us, and God, yet God in his grace uh, is going to uh, uh, make these covenants with us. And so you see the language of preamble and prologue where the sovereign is going to rehearse his sovereignty in Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And you're going to see something like that again in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before there is a giving of law, before there are the stipulations and responsibilities and all of these sorts of things, the, the covenantal basis is established there of grace, that God is gracious, that God has taken the initiative to draw his people out of slavery, that God has been gracious to draw them out of slavery, and he's uh, on the cusp of bringing them into the promised land, that this is, uh, although there are aspects of law here, that this is founded fundamentally on God's grace. In addition to this preamble and prologue, there's going to be principles, there's stipulations, there are going to be laws that are given, which is another common uh, sort of aspect of ancient Near Eastern uh, covenants. And then there's blessings and curses in particular in the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy as uh, they're going to stand on two different mountains, each representing one representing blessing, the other representing uh, curses. And so these are some of the, the aspects of ancient Near Eastern covenants that we see uh, here as God is going to use kind of the existing concepts to communicate uh, to his people. Uh, in your notes, I have a number of places listed there where it uh, has explicit mention of the word covenant. I think this is every one with the exception of a couple of places where God talks about making covenants with, uh, with other nations, like if Israel is to make a covenant with another nation. So I took those out because those are not divine covenants. Um, but uh, just on your own time, at some point, you can read over those. These are all, again, the explicit mentions of covenants in, uh, in the book of uh, Exodus. But for the sake of time, we won't read through uh, all of those. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of the first five books of the Old Testament. In order to understand the Mosaic Covenant, you really need to understand the entire structure of what's called the, uh, the Torah. Uh, and, uh, and so we want to talk a little bit uh, about that to show kind of how all of this is going to fit together. This is really intended to be read as one sort of continuous 
uh, story. And uh, so we want to talk a little bit about how that fits together. So we've talked about Genesis before. We've been talking about that in the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And, uh, and so it's, it's really at this time that covers the, uh, the patriarchs from creation all the way to the calling of Abraham uh, to, uh, at the end of the book, Israel in Egypt flourishing under uh, Joseph. And, uh, and so that's the book of uh, Genesis. It's really kind of establishing the story. It's kind of the setting, the setting of the story. And so we typically, we, we might read the book of Genesis as, uh, as if it's kind of like, in a lot of senses, it, it, it is one of the most interesting books within the entire Bible. But really, from a biblical perspective, it's setting the table. It's setting the table so that we get to Exodus. Exodus is really uh, kind of the point of the Old Testament. That is what the Bible is going to continue to go back to over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus' death is called an Exodus. Uh, and, uh, and so Exodus really is, is kind of the heart of, uh, of the Old Testament. And so, uh, so Exodus from chapters 1 through 18 is going to, uh, to cover the Exodus. That's where we get the name of the book. Again, that is a Greek word that means just going out as Israel is going out from slavery in Egypt. And, uh, and so chapters 1 through 18 covers the events of the Exodus from, uh, from Moses and the burning bush to going back to, uh, to Egypt, to all of the plagues, to going through the Red Sea, uh, all of that, all the way in their journey to Sinai. So chapters 1 through 18 is everything from uh, Egypt to Sinai. That's 1 through 18. Chapters 19 through 24 is really going to be the heart of the covenant in the book of Exodus. Chapters 19 through 24 uh, is kind of the covenant description. So if you want to know, like, where do I see, in particular, the Mosaic covenant, that is where you're going to look. Chapters 19 through 24 of the book of Exodus. In chapter 19, you have the covenant initiation. Again, chapter 19, covenant initiation. So starting in verse 1, I'll read the first eight verses. You should have this in your notes. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, And thus ye shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Speaking really quickly, I feel like Zach. It's, uh, it's hard for me. Uh, so Exodus 19, uh, 1 through 8 is kind of the beginning, the covenant initiation, where God initiates first this Mosaic covenant. And I want you to notice a few things about this that we'll see in uh, the book of, uh, in chapter 19. So the first one, notice the degree to which law and grace are going to be intertwined. Notice the degree to, the degree to which law and grace are uh, intertwined. He says there, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, there, obey, there is this element of obedience, but it's tied to, it's tethered to 
God's grace. There, is, uh, there are theologies out there that would, uh, that would want to make the entire Bible into kind of God's commands versus the gospel. Uh, God's commands versus God's promises. But you can see it's really, those things are knotted together in such a way that it's oftentimes really difficult and arbitrary for us to uh, divide them like that. The difference that we see, the contrast that we see in Scripture uh, between law and gospel is not command versus promise. It's where does the power to fulfill the promise come from? Is it something that we are to do in our own on, in flesh, or is it something that we do uh, on the basis of the Spirit? And we'll talk about that as we get into the new covenant in a couple of weeks. So that's the first thing, though, that I want you to notice is the degree to which, when you're reading uh, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the degree to which there is this tethering together, this tying together, this knotting together of God's law and also His grace. A second thing to notice, you see here even this language of the purpose that the glory of God is going to be revealed through Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he said there. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a uh, holy nation. And the third thing to notice, and you don't see that uh, play out fully here in the section that I've quoted in your notes, but there is this pattern that you'll see if you read the entire Uh, uh, 19th chapter of Exodus, you see this uh, pattern in which Moses is going to go up on the mountain, and Moses comes down on the mountain. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and goes down. He goes up to meet with God, and he comes down and meet with the people. He goes up to meet with God, and he comes down to meet with the people. And the purpose uh, of that is in order to communicate this idea of there's this distance that exists between God and man. In essence, the covenant is an attempt to kind of mediate that distance. Because God is transcendent, because God is holy, uh, the covenant is a means by which Israel is intended to be a holy nation, uh, but they're never going to be as holy as is necessary. There's always going to be need of mediation. One of the great things about the new covenant is that we see that that, uh, we have a final mediator, a mediator between God and man, and no longer must we go up and down the mountain but we are able to be in the very presence of God because of uh, Jesus Christ. But that's one other thing just to to mention about this, this pattern of Moses going up and down, up and down, up and down to signify this distance and the holiness uh, of God. That's uh, chapter 19, the covenant initiation. In chapter 20, again, you have this uh, preamble and prologue, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then you also have what are called the Ten Commandments. Uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's just the ten words. Uh, the ten words that are given to Israel is there in Exodus chapter 20. And then Exodus 21 through 23 are the various other laws that are given to Israel. They're called oftentimes the judgments. Uh, Here's an interesting way to think of this. Whereas the Ten Commandments are these timeless uh, sort of uh, general principles, uh, the uh, commandments, the judgments that are given in 21 through 23 are kind of case law. They're taking the general timeless commands of the the, uh, Ten Commandments and they're applying them to uh, certain circumstances. All right. They are, uh, whereas the, uh, the Ten Commandments are more generic, they're just, you shall not. Whereas these judgments, these case laws are more like, if 
this happens. If your ox gores somebody, if a slave desires to remain with his master, if these sorts of things, it's, it's talking about all of these sorts of conditions. If a man strikes another man and it happens to be uh, on accident, then this is what you're to do. But if he strikes another man and it's on purpose, this is what you are to do. If someone does this particular thing on the Sabbath, this is what you're to do. Again, the Ten Commandments are more sort of uh, timeless. We'll talk a little bit at the end uh, about why uh, I don't think that the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are going to be binding uh, for us today, but they're more timeless sort of generic things, whereas the, uh, uh, the other judgments of uh, chapters 21 through 23 are uh, these sort of case law. And there are, in total, 613 different commands that are given in, uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. 613 uh, commands that are given in the Mosaic Covenant. Imagine... If, if someone were to ask you, name as many of those as you could. I mean, most of us probably couldn't mention all of the Ten Commandments, much less all 613 of these commands that are given in the Mosaic Covenant. And it covers everything. Again, this is a holistic thing. It's intended to cover political and social and religious aspects of life in Israel. It covers morality to civil commands, to ceremonial uh, commands, to liturgical life, all of these uh, sorts of things. And so to violate the law was to violate the covenant. We see that in Leviticus 26, 15. If you spurn my statues, statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, you see this tethering together, the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant. If you break the law, you break the covenant because part of the covenant is this law that God gives to his people. And so chapters 21 through 23 are all of these different issues of case law that God gives to the people of Israel. And then in chapter 24, there's a ceremony of confirmation, verses 7 through 8. Then he took the book of the covenant, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the word of the blood, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And, uh, and so they say, we will do everything that the Lord has said. And there is this covenant of blood that is made there. And so the covenant is uh, confirmed. Immediately after that, Moses goes up on the mountain. What happens while he's up on the mountain? Anybody remember? Yeah, they build the idol, right? So within a couple of days of saying, we will confirm this covenant, we will do that, they literally don't make it a couple of months. They don't make it a couple of years. They make it a few days before all of a sudden they are going absolutely mad and, uh, and break a number of the, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, already. And so that's in chapter 24. So 19 through 24, that's the covenant description, the heart of the covenant. Chapters 25 through 40 of Exodus are the various worship regulations, the prescriptions for the sanctuary and the establishment of a sign. We've talked about how most of the covenants that God gives have some sort of sign. With the Noahic covenant, there is the sign uh, of the, uh, the rainbow. With the Abrahamic covenant, there is the sign of circumcision. What would you say is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? I heard mumbling. Mumbling is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. 
so I always thought, before really looking at it in depth, I always thought it was just another uh, example of circumcision because circumcision is so closely tied with the Mosaic law. In fact, that's what we've seen over and over and over in the book of Romans. We've talked about circumcision quite a bit, probably more than you've ever talked about circumcision in your life in the book of Romans because it comes up so often because it is uh, tied into the Mosaic law as part of a distinctiveness of what it means to be an Israelite. And yet, this is not the language of what uh, the Bible itself is going to say is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. It's a sign of being an Israelite, but the sign of the Mosaic covenant in particular is the Sabbath. Exodus 31, 13 through 17 You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Uh, For the sake of time, we won't read uh, the rest of that. But you can see there that the Sabbath is the sign that is established for the sake of uh, the Mosaic Covenant. And so I want to talk a little bit about this uh, as it relates to today. We'll talk a little bit more as we get into the New Covenant and see the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant and see how we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. But the role of the Sabbath today, I think, is important while we're talking about this as the sign of the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. And so Romans 14.5 says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each per- one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Colossians 2.16-17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so we've talked about this uh, before. We've talked about the fact that Galatians talks about the law. The book of Galatians talks about the law, and it uses the imagery of a babysitter. It says the law is like a babysitter, But at some point, there is going to be this point of maturity where you no longer need a babysitter, hopefully, right? When you're a kid, you need a babysitter, and part of that babysitter's job is to establish certain rules. You have bedtime. You have nap time. uh, You have curfew, these sorts of things. Now, as an adult, do you have all of those sorts of things? Probably not, right? You probably don't have an established nap time that you're going to get a spanking if you don't go in there for nap time. You're not going to get time out or something like that. If you probably don't have some sort of curfew, all right? Now, does that mean that you don't rest? No, right? You might not have a nap time. You might not have an established bedtime. You still rest. That's the imagery that the Bible is going to use for the way that we are to relate to the Sabbath. We're no longer under the law, but we still rest. We're no longer under the regulation of the Sabbath, but we're still under this principle in which it is good and wise and beneficial for us to rest. So is there an expectation that Christians rest? Yes. But is there a command that they do so on, the, on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, the true Sabbath, or on Sunday, the Lord's Day? Or is there a definite six-to-one pattern that we see that you have to follow In other words, are you, if you're a Christian and you work eight days in a row, are you necessarily sinning? And the answer from that from a New Testament perspective is no. Now, you might be. You might be neglecting your family. You might be super greedy, and so you're just working to excess because you're motivated by greed. But in which case, the problem are those vices. The problem is your greed. The problem is your neglect of your family. The problem is that. The problem is not that you're not uh, following up with this command that is given to uh, Israel in, uh, in the wilderness. So 
that is uh, the book of Exodus. You have chapters 1 through 18 as being the uh, kind of the covenant, uh, the covenant uh, historical context. 19 is the uh, sort of the initiation. Uh, 20, the preamble, the prologue, the Ten Commandments, 21 through 23, you're going to have all of the different judgments and case law. Uh, 24, the covenant, covenant confirmation. And then 25 through the end of the book is going to be all of the different worship regulations. What does it mean to be uh, worshipers of God there in, uh, in Israel? All of the, the, the festivals and feasts and all of the uh, regulations for the tabernacle, all of these sorts of things. Then you move on to the book of Leviticus, which is named after the Levitical priests, which uh, is the, the main content there. It's concerned with sacrifices and worship regulations and those sorts of things. Then the book of Numbers. The name Numbers comes from there are two main censuses of the people. There are censuses that are given, censuses, how do you pluralize census, censuses of the people. But really, that's not the main point of the book of Numbers, is not the numbers themselves. Really, uh, the main narrative of Numbers is really moving the story uh, from uh, their traveling to the border the border of the promised land, and then their subsequent uh, refusal to enter and the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. This is where this occurs, is in the book of, uh, of Numbers. And then Deuteronomy, which name uh, means second law, Deuteros and Namas uh, means second and law because it's the, uh, the confirmation of the Mosaic law, the confirmation of the Mosaic covenant that's given to the second generation. The first generation dies off in the wilderness. They refuse to enter God's land, and so, you say, so he says, you will never enter my land. Your children will enter the land. And so God then reestablishes, reconfirms this covenant with uh, the second generation there uh, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. And so in a lot of senses, it's a repetition, a reconfirmation of the Mosaic law, but what's really interesting is the Bible actually talks about it as almost as if it's a separate covenant. A covenant that God makes a covenant with the first generation, and he makes a similar covenant with the second generation. There's a sense in which you could say that there is a Mosaic, and then there is a Deuteronomic uh, covenant, and those are separate. That's the uh, language, Deuteronomy 29.1. I think you have this in your notes. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Here's the uh, interesting phrase, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Or, uh, which is another uh, name for Sinai. And, uh, and so, uh, in some sense, this is a separate covenant. But really, it is just a uh, re-articulation, a reconfirmation, and a, a bit of an expansion upon the original Mosaic covenant because God doesn't actually finish the entire revelation of the Mosaic covenant before Israel sins. Uh, again, Moses is still up on the mountain uh, receiving regulations and, uh, and revelation and that kind of stuff. And Israel has already rebelled uh, there at the foot of the, uh, the mountain. And so that is, uh, is the book of Deuteronomy, though. So that is, in general, the kind of the flow and the structure of the Torah from Genesis all the way uh, to Deuteronomy. Let's talk about the promises that we see in the Mosaic Covenant and... Uh, and then the, uh, the issue of whether it's conditional, and then we'll talk about it uh, and us today. So the promises of the covenant, that Israel would be God's prized possession. Israel would be God's prized possession. I'm going to read over these really quickly and not give a lot of explanation. Second, that Israel will be a kingdom of priests. Third, that Israel will be a holy nation. Fourth, that God will defend Israel from all her enemies. 
And fifth, that God will be merciful, gracious, and forgiving. And that's the last, but you kind of save the best for last because that's kind of the bookends. That's the beginning and that's the end of the Mosaic Covenant is God's mercy and grace uh, that He gives to His people. So let's talk a little bit about is it conditional? Is the Mosaic Covenant uh, conditional? Are there certain conditions that uh, Israel must meet in order for God to fulfill His requirements or responsibilities? And, uh, and so what we'll see is that there's a sense in which it is and there's a sense in which it, it, it is not. It's kind of a, a both-and, which the staff guys make fun of me. Apparently, I say the phrase both-and quite a bit. But there's this if-then nature to it. Uh, there are these blessings and curses. We read about that where God has says, if you indeed will obey my voice. We've read that in Exodus 19. So what is conditional, what is going to be conditional, is whether God's covenant faithfulness will be revealed uh, through... Israel's obedience and subsequent blessing, or whether God's covenant faithfulness will be revealed through Israel's disobedience and subsequent discipline. That's what's going to be conditional. What is not going to be conditional is whether or not God's covenant faithfulness is going to be seen, whether or not God's glory is going to be revealed, whether God is going to be merciful and gracious and all of these sorts of things. God is going to be faithful to those promises. The only aspect that is conditional is whether God's faithfulness will be manifest through his blessing or his discipline of Israel. And so that's the difference that exists there. There's also this element that we're intended to see that it is conditional, but there is one and only one who has perfectly fulfilled all of those conditions. When we typically talk about Jesus, we talk about his sinlessness, but we tend to think of those things merely as just kind of moral law, that Jesus doesn't break any moral law and that's absolutely true, but there's something more than that that the Bible, the New Testament is going to present of Jesus, and that is that he doesn't break any of the Mosaic law. That Jesus absolutely never wavered one bit when it came to his uh, obedience to the Mosaic law. Not just moral law in general, right and wrong and these sorts of things, but God's Mosaic law, the law that he has given to Israel uh, in, uh, in the wilderness. And that is really important. When I was growing up, I would hear sermons or teachings or whatever it might be that almost hinted at Jesus breaking the law. Like he doing, he's doing something on a Sabbath or whenever he's uh, talking to the woman that's caught in adultery, which may or may not be in the Bible, but that's beside the point. Uh, but, uh, but I heard these stories that kind of suggested that Jesus kind of bent, if not broke the Mosaic law, but that's not the case. If, if Jesus broke the Mosaic law, then we're still under the Mosaic law, that he has not redeemed us from the curse of the law. And, uh, and so what we see is not Jesus breaking the Mosaic law. We instead see him breaking the tradition, the wall of tradition that's built around the law. The Mosaic law said you should not go any further than this. What we see Jesus doing is in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth had said, you can't even go this close. You don't want to get close to the edge, so you can't even go this close. And so Jesus breaks that, and he goes as far as uh, he might be allowed to. So that's uh, the aspect of is it conditional. There's a sense in which it is. There's a sense in which it is not. But Jesus is the only one who ever fully fulfills the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. And so uh, he fulfills it so that we don't have to which is really important for us as we think about our relationship to the Mosaic Law. That's where I want to uh, end. What's really interesting is a number of our denominational differences. As you look at uh, just uh, coven uh, the 
the existence of Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and on and on we could go with all of these different denominations. A number of the most fundamental differences between those denominations uh, hinge on how one kind of relates a Christian today living under the new covenant to an Israelite living under the Mosaic covenant. The best example of this is paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. And we'll spend, by the way, we'll spend three, uh, not, not three weeks, we'll spend a week on this in three weeks talking just about this thing in particular. In what ways is baptism analogous to circumcision? Should we circumcise, uh, should we baptize our kids, uh, any of these uh, sorts of things? So uh, invite your paedo-baptist friends uh, here for that. And, uh, and so this is one of the, uh, the more important discussions, how Christians are to relate to the Mosaic uh, law. Should we baptize our babies? You can see why this is important for us. Because if we get it wrong, we might be doing something sinful. We're baptizing our babies, and we shouldn't be baptizing babies. Or we might be doing something sinful by not doing so. We should baptize our babies, and we're not baptizing our babies. Or we're eating a BLT later. Is that sinful? Is it sinful to eat bacon? Should we offer sacrifices? Did you sin yesterday? You mowed the lawn. It was a Sabbath. Did you sin in doing that? Did you sin by checking your email? These are the kinds of things. How do you answer when someone says that Christians are inconsistent? Because Christians might uh, say that homosexuality is incompatible with God's purposes, and yet at the same time, we will eat a BLT. How is it that we're not inconsistent whenever we're picking and choosing various laws from the Old Testament? So all of these things are going to be really important. We'll talk about a number of them when we get to the New Covenant uh, in two weeks, and then we'll talk about baptism versus circumcision in three weeks. Uh, but I want to give a few different principles for now uh, just to kind of wet our whistle. Is that the right phrase, wet or whistle? I think so. Uh, so principles to understand the Mosaic Law and the Christian today. The first one that's really important for us is that the law is good and holy and righteous. So there's going to be this sense in which we're con contrasting the Mosaic law with the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. And no matter how careful we are in our language, there's always going to be this sense in which by expounding upon the beauty and the glory of the new covenant, it's going to seem as if we're denigrating the Mosaic covenant, and that's not the intent. Uh, the problem is not the Mosaic covenant. The problem is mankind. Uh, and so, uh, so whenever we're talking about the, the contrast that exists, I don't want you to think that I am denigrating the, uh, the Mosaic covenant. Paul says that in Romans 7, 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's the first principle to maintain. The law is good and holy and righteous. The second principle, though, but the law is weak because of human weakness. But the law is weak because of human weakness. Romans 8, 3, for God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. What does weak mean? It lacks the power to accomplish what it prescribes. It lacks the power to accomplish what it prescribes. We've used this uh, kind of poetic device before. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither, neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. 
the contrast uh, is not that uh, there is command in the Mosaic Covenant and there's just promise in the New Covenant. There's commands in both. There's promises in both. There's grace in both. The difference is that in the New Covenant, there is power given to those prescriptions. And so the, the law is weak because of human weakness. A third thing to keep in mind is that the law is indivisible. It's a solitary sort of unified reality. It's indivisible. Uh, it's common, uh, especially in uh, covenantal theology and reform circles, Presbyterianism, these sorts of things, to divide the law into three different categories, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And to say we're no longer under the civil aspects of the law, no longer under the ceremonial aspects of the law, but we're still under the moral aspects of the law. So you go through with a little highlighter and you highlight certain things in pink and certain things in green and certain things in yellow. And, uh, and you get rid of all the kind of civil and ceremonial, but all the things that are in yellow, all the things that are uh, part of the moral law, you keep those. It's really common uh, to do that. The problem with that uh, is multivaried or whatever. The first one, Scripture itself doesn't testify to such a division. Scripture itself doesn't testify to such a uh, division. Neither did ancient Jews. When ancient Jews talked about the uh, Mosaic Covenant, when they talked about the law, they didn't divide it into these three different aspects. A second thing is it becomes really arbitrary for us and subjective because we're intended to see that those aspects are oftentimes intentionally interwoven together. So if someone were to ask you the, the command about the Sabbath, right, the command of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment of the, uh, the Ten Commandments, kind of the heart of the moral law, is the Sabbath a moral command? Is the Sabbath a ceremonial command or is the Sabbath a civil command? You would have to say yes. It has moral aspects because if you break it, you are considered disobedient and therefore you are immoral. There's a ceremonial aspect. There are certain things you can and can't do on it. There's a civil aspect because the entire nation is to gather together and stone you if you're disobedient on the Sabbath. And so uh, for us to try to uh, untie each of these elements is going to be difficult because the Bible is going to intentionally kind of wo weave all of these things together. In fact, you could say that the entire law this is one of the big problems with saying that the law is divided into all these categories, but the entire law is moral. Why do I say that? Because if you break the law, you're disobedient. No matter what that law is, if that law is a civil aspect or a ceremonial aspect or a moral aspect, if you break the law, you're being disobedient. And the definition of disobedience is immorality. It's against a more. It's against a rule and a regulation and, uh, and so whether it's sacrifices or food laws or cleanliness regulations or whatever it might be, all of these things are moral to some degree. And so for us to simply say we're going to keep the moral aspects of the law and throw out everything means really we have to keep everything because everything in a sense is going to be moral. But the last reason I think that this is uh, an unhelpful division is because Scripture itself is going to speak of the uni unity and the indivisibility of the law. Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Galatians 5, 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You can't just keep aspects of it. You can't just take circumcision and leave out other things. You can't pick and choose what it is that you want to follow. James says something similar. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
And so here's what I think. I think that this division between moral and ceremonial and civil can be helpful. It can be helpful for us to kind of understand the, the, the various different aspects of the law. So it can be a helpful kind of internal thing for us as an informal rule, uh, but not as something that we're going to build an entire theology over. It's kind of like the uh, I before E except after C rule, which can be really helpful. It could help you spell some words correctly, but it's something like 50% of the time it's actually wrong, right? So I wouldn't build your entire grammar and linguistics and go into a spelling bee on the basis of, uh, of that. Likewise, this can be a helpful division for us to understand moral, ceremonial, and civil, but we can't build an entire uh, theology on it because the fourth point, Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. The New Testament explicitly speaks. There's no longer a need of sacrifices. There's no longer the need for purity laws. Jesus declares all foods clean. Peter has that vision in the book of Acts where he said, take and eat, even of these unclean animals. There's no ethnic boundaries. All of these intentions uh, of the Mosaic law, all of these things that God embeds into the law, all of the purposes have been fulfilled in Christ. In fact, uh, uh, Jesus would say of all of the scripture in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Later on in that chapter, he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Moses is writing in the Mosaic law, in the Torah. He is writing of Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus says in Matthew 5, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as a consequence of all of this, we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, but instead the new covenant. Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 1 Corinthians 9.20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being, under, uh, not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. So when we get to the new covenant in a couple of weeks, we'll really spend more time kind of fleshing this out. But let me give you a summary. That the Mosaic covenant... And the Mosaic law reveal what it looked like for God to rule and reign over the ethnic people of Israel within their own land. We are not under that context because we're not ethnic Israel living in that time and place. And that covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel in the wilderness has been fulfilled in Christ. He perfectly met all of those conditions so while it's still authoritative because it's still God's word, it's still inspired, it's still helpful as the word of God, it's no longer binding upon the Christian conscience. The righteousness and glory of God that's enshrined there stays the same, but God's stipulations, God's responsi- uh, requirements for us, our responsibilities, our obligations have changed in light of the fulfillment uh, that, uh, that Jesus has accomplished. And, uh, and so that does not mean that we are therefore free to do whatever we want. Right after saying that uh, Paul is no longer under the law, in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Here's the helpful parenthetical remark. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So even though we're no longer under the Mosaic law, we're still under 
the law of Jesus Christ. And there are certain things that look really similar. Just because we're not under the Mosaic law doesn't mean we can therefore now go murder. Why? Because the law of Christ is you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you shall love God. And fellow man is our neighbor and he also bears the image of God. So therefore, because we love God and we love others, we no longer do it. The illustration that we've used a number of times is you're driving along uh, and uh, you're driving north and you cross the border from Texas into Oklahoma. And in Texas, you were going 70 miles per hour because the speed limit was 70 miles per hour. And then you get into Oklahoma and the speed limit, assuming that they have laws in Oklahoma, the speed limit there is 70 miles per hour. And so you're still going 70 miles per hour. But why are you going 70? Is it because that a speed limit sign in Texas said 70? No, you're no longer under that jurisdiction. You're no longer under that authority. You've passed into a new authority. And so although your application stays the same, your authority, your jurisdiction, your reason for doing it is entirely different. Likewise, although there are a number of similarities between certain moral principles embedded in the Mosaic law and what we see in the New Testament, the reason that we are to do those is profoundly different. We don't do something only because it's in even the Ten Commandments, the, the kind of the height of the Mosaic law. The reason is never because of this. The reason is always uh, because of this. And so let me end just by, uh, by reading a couple of things that kind of make this point. Galatians 5, 14. As I do so, Zach, if you want to go ahead and make your way up. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe to no one anything anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, uh, someone comes and says, Jesus, a teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Okay, that's Mosaic Covenant in 57 minutes. We have like uh, eight minutes for questions.